0: You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Okay, we're going to have our Bible reading tonight, this afternoon from Nehemiah chapter 13. On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent." Now before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of our God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers "'and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God "'with the grain offering and the frankincense. "'I also found out that the portions of the Levites "'had not been given to them, "'so that the Levites, the singers who did the work, "'had fled each to his field. "'So I confronted the officials and said, "'Why is the house of God forsaken? "'And I gathered them together and set them in their stations.' Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Pediah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Now to verse 30. Then I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at the appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Paul. Thanks be to God. If you haven't met me before, my name is Coy. I'm the Associate Pastor here, and it's so great to see you all on this Sunday night. Sunday afternoon? Sunday night. We're in our last sermon for our Rebuild series today, and it's been quite the journey over these past three months, as seen in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. We've seen the nation Israel called to come home, to rebuild their city, to rebuild their lives as a people of God. And along the way, they've been met with opposition, obstacles, some external but plenty internal. We've seen a people disobey God, grievously sinning, yet also some uh, also saw them come to God in repentance, committing themselves to God, promising to obey and live in holiness as a covenant people. We've seen Israel complete their rebuild, celebrating God, celebrating their success. And just last week in chapter 11 and 12, we saw a people joyful as they praise and worship the God who continued to be faithful to them. It's been a wild ride reading of Israel over these past two books. And how it ended last week felt like just like the perfect close for the people of God. That as verse 43 of chapter 12 says, And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. That would have been a fitting conclusion for a people who God had called to come home to rebuild their city and to rebuild their lives. And yet, how the book of Nehemiah actually does end in this final chapter is not with an obedient, holy, joyful people, but a people who were not willing to give up their sins. Reading about Israel continuing on in their disobedience of God for what feels like the millionth time, what once felt sad, now just feels frustrating. Just when we thought Israel had finally learnt from their mistakes, they go on and they continue on in their sin how many times do they need a spiritual rebuild? How many times do they need to be restored? See, as frustrating as it is, there's a lot that we can learn from God's people in these pages and a lot that we actually see of ourselves. In this passage, I suggest that we see two things. One, that God's people had a permissiveness of sin, a complacency in their relationship with God, and two, that Nehemiah shows a passion for holiness, responding to their complacency by pointing them back to obedience. So as we prepare to dig into this final chapter, let me pray first. Heavenly Father, Lord, we're just so thankful that we can gather today together as a church, as a body. Lord, we thank you for your books, Ezra and Nehemiah, and just how wonderfully encouraging, convicting, and challenging they've been over the past few months for us, Lord. We pray that they may do the same. May your words do those things for us, Lord, and may it be only your words that challenge, convict, and encourage us today, Lord. We thank you for your word. You are so good to us, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Says so as we begin chapter 13, to give a bit of context, uh, after 12 years, as governor of Judah, helping in the rebuild of Jerusalem, Nehemiah had returned to Babylon where he was from and served there for what they say for, for some time. But now in our passage that we're reading today, Nehemiah has sought permission to come back to Jerusalem to continue aiding in the rebuild of God's people, kind of to check up how they're going. And upon arriving back, Nehemiah was faced with something terrible. Verse 6, and after some time I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem and I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. Eliashib was appointed the high priest of the temple of God in Jerusalem, an extremely high honor, a leader of his people. And yet what he had done was he had given one of the large storerooms in God's temple to be an apartment room for his relative Tobiah to stay in whenever Tobiah was in town. He essentially used his power and his privilege to give a favor to a mate. And this was wrong on so many levels because God had commanded that no Ammonite should have a place in the temple. They weren't God's people at all. In fact, this Ammonite, Tobiah in particular, we have met him before. Tobiah had been the one who previously was vocal in opposing the rebuild of the wall in Jerusalem. He was part of the mob who were ridiculing and intimidating the builders, God's people. He even joined in on the conspiracy to frighten Nehemiah, and lead him, hoping that he would be led into sin so they could have ammo to disgrace Nehemiah. He sent letters to Nehemiah to threaten him. This is Tobiah. Basically, Tobiah was a sworn enemy of Nehemiah's. Tobiah was not only a shoddy bloke, but he was an opponent of God and God's people. And yet Eliashib, the high priest of God's own people, had the audacity to allow this man out of all people, to use God's temple as an Airbnb, blatantly disobeying God. See, and this stuff still happens today. I think of that infamous event that some of you may know of where a pastor from a megachurch in Singapore was found to have used millions of dollars of church funds to boost the singing career of his wife. Just horrendous. If you want the link, ask me after the service. But there is literally no excuse, no excuse for what Eliashib or this pastor did. For a man in Eliashib's position, with the responsibilities that God had given him, what was he thinking? Why does he do this? Well, I think this passage reveals from him a willingness to compromise on what's right. See, as the high priest, out of all people, Eliashib should have known the importance of keeping the temple the way God wanted it, a holy place for a holy God. But as we can see, he chose to compromise on what he knew was right, having personal relationships and concerns supersede his relationship and concern to God. He would rather serve his own interests than serve the Lord faithfully. And obediently. Eliashib was a man who'd been called to a greater responsibility for the people of God, yet he uses his power and his position to serve his own selfish purposes. And it's a real picture of this permissiveness of sin, isn't it? This lenient, loose attitude towards God's law. Eliashib chooses to compromise on what ought to be done, leading to a blatant sin and corruption. In his actions. But what's important for us to know is that Elijah, compromising on what he knew was right, didn't actually start at him offering the room to Tobiah. That's not where it began, but it started in him having a friendship, a relationship with Tobiah in the first place. Because right at the beginning of chapter 13, in verse 1 to 3, God had told his people that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. See, the people of God together in this moment at the dedication of the temple said that they will not allow any foreigners, especially Ammonites, enter into the assembly of God. Now, I don't think this is telling us that we shouldn't be friends with non-Christians, non-believers, but rather what it's talking about in this context was that these Ammonites, especially Tobiah, were such a toxic influence on God's people. As I described earlier, they were not only opponents of Nehemiah, but they were opponents of God doing whatever they could to tear down God's will and purpose for God's people. They wanted to stop the flourishing that God had intended for God's people. So as opponents of God, people who could really corrupt and influence God's people, God is telling them not to have anything to do with them. Don't even have them around you. And yet here we have the high priest of Israel befriend one of the most notorious opposing Ammonites there was allowing Tobiah to influence him, to determine his values, values which were not of the Lord's. Can you see that this all started with Eliashib compromising on what God had told him not to do? He was soft on God's commands, lenient with God's law, which led to an outright appalling act and sin that desecrated God's temple. You see, what we have to realize is that when it comes to obedience to God, compromise will often lead to more compromise. A little will lead to a lot. I don't think Elisha ever planned to have a room saved in the temple for Tobiah when he was called to be the high priest for Israel. But it was his flirting with what God had prohibited, befriending somebody that he shouldn't have that led him to compromise more of what he knew was right, ultimately becoming permissive of sin. See, sin can be so, so potent. It doesn't take much for us to compromise on what the Bible has told us to do. And the more we do it, the more lenient we become, to the point where one day, without even realising, we're allowing ourselves to freely sin, to live permissively of it. It's like the closer you choose to creep to that line between holy living and disobedience to God, pushing that line further and further, soon enough you find yourself completely on the other side of where that line started. Eliashiv is a prime example of this. But perhaps what makes his actions even worse is that by his permissiveness of sin the consequences of his actions actually reached further. It impacted the entire community of faith. Look what it says in verse 10. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. Eliashib had given the storeroom to Debiah. And it was this storeroom where normally all the offerings, all the tithes and the items dedicated to the Lord were held. These were the provisions for the temple servants to uh, support their families and support their livelihoods so that they could dedicate all their time to their vital work in the temple. But because this storeroom was now being used as Tobiah's personal space, it meant that there wasn't any room for the tithes in the, any room for the tithes in there. So resulting in the temple officials not requiring people to bring in offerings anymore. They're like, it's all good. We don't have space for them anyway. Don't, you don't need to give no more, which meant the temple workers were now working out in the fields to make a living. In Nehemiah 10, just a few chapters back, Israel made the promise to God to not neglect the house of our God, and yet here they were doing exactly what they said they wouldn't do, neglecting to faithfully give to support the house of God, neglecting their devotion to God. Do you see how dangerous permissiveness can be? For Eliashib compromising on what God had told him to do, his actions have now affected an entire community. The faith community were no longer giving, and so his priestly brothers have been forced to go work out in the fields. It's scary that Elisha's disobedience meant that the people of God were now also disobeying the Lord. You know, The priests weren't fulfilling their duties in the temple. The people weren't tithing as commanded by God's law. His own permissiveness led to an entire permissive people. That's how fatal this can be. You know, honestly, I think of my own past example where just start, just starting Bible college and just starting uh, as a youth pastor a while back for the first time, I found myself still struggling with old ways. I remember being invited to go clubbing uh, with a few people in my church. And even after some really close godly friends around me were like, Bro, you shouldn't do this. Don't do this. It's very, we think it'd be pretty unwise. I thought to myself, This is harmless. I'm here to make sure everyone's okay. I'm not going to do anything wrong there anyway. You know, maybe I can be a witness in the clubs, you know, witness to the people. The only thing people are witnessing is bad dancing, you know? But it wouldn't be long until. I saw the real consequences, before I saw the real consequences, as some of the youth, some of the young adults would start going, clubbing themselves, and eventually come to Sundays absolutely drunk, still getting into all sorts, even heard some, they'd gone to drugs. And what stuck with me was when one of them said, well, Coy goes, so it must be okay. It was a real reflective moment for me as a leader, one that I wish I could go back and change. What stands out from Eliashib's actions is the importance of faithful spiritual leadership. It was quite confronting working through this as a pastor myself. It reminded me of the potency permissiveness is in a role and position as my own. You A theologian, Brenneman, states that when the spiritual life of leaders diminishes because of sin or carelessness, God's provision for his work also decreases. As spiritual leaders, there's a great responsibility. The Bible tells us this. Luke chapter 12, verse 48. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. When leaders of the church compromise on what's right, it more often than not leads to more compromise, opening the door for the sin of others, corrupting God's standards in the entire faith community. Oftentimes, in a subtle way or sometimes more obvious, we are looking for permission for our sin. So when we see someone else doing something, we tell ourselves, it's okay, like we almost justify it which is why it's particularly bad for leaders to sin because people are looking at them and telling themselves, well, if he's doing it, it must be okay. But I don't think that this is strictly isolated to leaders, but true to all of us sitting here today. Because as Christians, people are always looking at us, are looking to us. From this passage, we're seeing the importance of being faithful in the responsibilities that God has given us. That as a people of God who have been called to serve him, whatever responsibilities we may have, we all need to avoid getting into the temptation of permissiveness. We need to be proactive in our righteousness. Romans 6.18 says, Having been set free from sin, we have become slaves of righteousness. We need to draw firm lines where they need to be drawn, when it comes to our sin and righteousness, because it does, doesn't only affect us, but it can, infect, it can affect an entire church. So it might mean not watching that TV show that everyone is raving on about because it has so many questionable themes. It might mean not having to get close not getting close to that person who often tries to influence you and your values in a very toxic way. It might mean rethinking how you spend your money on that particular thing. It might mean holding your tongue in that long overdue catch-up. It's quite revealing that this happened to Eliashib out of all people. Remember, he was the high priest that God had called to lead his people. So what this tells us is nobody is immune to this. Nobody. But while Eliashib's compromising what's right played a big role in the permissiveness of, of Israel, from our passage what we'll see also is that the people tolerating what's wrong was just as unhelpful. Because while Eliashib may have started a chain reaction with his compromising actions, this doesn't mean that God's people had a pass. Their actions weren't justified and put on somebody else as blame. As God's people, they knew clearly what God had commanded them by his word, by his law. And yet even with so much disobedience happening in their community, nobody stood up to this. Nobody took responsibility for this. Everybody was complacent, we read. They had all become soft, lenient to God's law. Something was obviously wrong. And yet here were a people who simply tolerated it, clearly showing a permissiveness of sin and just leaving it be. And this became even more evident as further down in the chapter in verse 15, we see Nehemiah witness what uh, the Israelite people got up to on the Sabbath, doing business on that day, on a day that God had called them clearly to make holy, a day set out to rest demonstrating their faith in God who truly provides. As Nehemiah looked around, as it says in verse 15, on the Sabbath, trade was prevalent. God's people even invited in merchants from outside, from Tyre, to come in and do business selling fish in Jerusalem on the Sabbath. People all around them were violating the Sabbath law, and yet it seems that everyone simply tolerated it, tolerated what was clearly wrong, permitted sin, lived in sin, can we see the spiritual decay that's happening here? Are people who tolerate what they know to be wrong that they now freely sin without as much as a peep? You know, being a new parent, my wife Lena and I uh, now regularly go to those playgrounds that are in shopping centres, uh, and with with our son Elijah, make sure it's definitely with my son. <laughs> <laughs> And when we were newbies at all this, when we just because we never really noticed playgrounds before that, but after that, when we were, when we were newbies to this, I was like, maybe he'd like this. We, we would always go there and see the sign that says, please make sure you take off your kids' shoes before you go in. And the noobs that we were, we actually followed that, that rule. You took off the shoes in the playgrounds so that Elijah could play. But we realized every playground that we eventually went to, nobody follows this rule. There are kids with shoes, with dirt, there's slides with mud on it, and this is inside. This is in Werribee. Not surprised, right? (laughs) I'm from Werribee. It's okay. But can you see, I have to admit now that I do the same. (laughs) So so Leah and I, we often keep his shoes on as well. Don't blame me. Blame the rebel Wyndham Council residents. But in a more serious sense, this is exactly what happens when we aren't hard on sin, when firm lines aren't drawn on righteous living, we eventually join in with what we see. We join in on the sin that we see. See, living in our Australian culture, we try to have a carefree, laid-back attitude towards most things. But when this attitude creeps into our Christian living, we become complacent when it comes to our holiness, to our righteousness. We be, be chill at the cost of tolerating sin. See, scholar Daron J. Bio says, stop the sin before the sin stops you. Because if we don't, if we continue to compromise on what we know to be right, or we remain to tolerate what we know to be wrong, what we'll find ourselves doing eventually is regressing to old ways. So if you've been with us through this Rebuild series, you may remember a few months back we had uh, the weighty chapter, chapter 10 of Ezra where God's people were found guilty of intermarrying into other nations, an issue not at all of race but a spiritual issue as it was a mixture of faiths with the foreigners influencing God's people to follow their gods and idols instead of the true God, Yahweh. But if you remember, Israel was racked with guilt, breaking down and confessing their sins to God, making wholesale changes to their lives, showing a real true repentance as they turned away from their sin. It was a powerful and significant moment for God's people. A turning point in the Ezra and Nehemiah narrative. And yet as we close out this final chapter of Nehemiah, we find that God's people have gone back to their old ways. Verse 23, he saw them marry women of Ashdod, Ammon and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. See, Nehemiah had the same concerns as Ezra, that the influence of foreign marriages meant the potential loss of their Jewish ancestry, which would have been disastrous in their worship and service of God as God's people. And yet here they were, marrying idolaters and raising up their children who couldn't understand their Jewish heritage. It would have spelt the end of God's people if it remained this way. God's people were back to where they were in Ezra chapter 10 regressed into their old ways old selves their old past sinful patterns and even worse those who should have been the greatest example to the people were now being the worst examples with the grandson of Eliashib the high priest marrying the daughter of Sanballat the Horonite Sanballat being one of the chief leaders who opposed Nehemiah and opposed the building, the rebuilding of the temple and its walls as well. It's just a total mess of sin, of the total mess of disobedience and corruption running rampant through the community of God's people. Here were a people who demonstrated a permissiveness of sin that had escalated to a blatant disregard for God's law and obedience. They've regressed to committing the same sins that they were that they started with a massive massive spiritual decline not long ago these people were on the up gone through a spiritual renewal spiritual reform as they celebrated the dedication of the temple made promises to God to live faithfully as his holy people and now it's sad and frustrating to see them almost back to where they started their spiritual reformation had fizzled out, lost steam from when it started. It's like a flat tire, right? Most flat tires don't become flat when don't become flat because it's suddenly blown up on you, unless it's my old Camry. But most car tires become flat because of air leaks that happen over time, slowly, gradually, indiscernibly, until one day we realise that we're stuck and we have to change the tire. This is what it looks like when we're permissive of sin. We don't realize until it's too late. This seemed to be the common pattern for God's people. And the reason why their spiritual highs, their peak moments of always lost steam was because ultimately they were a sinful people. Just as we are. The reality is we are naturally inclined to disobey God. It's in our nature. Romans 7 verse 18 says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. It was so easy for God's people in Nehemiah, in Nehemiah's time to go back to old sinful ways because they were, as we are, innately sinful. Sin is where we naturally incline. So it's almost no surprise that we hear of their reforming fizzling out. But thankfully, there's some good that comes from our passage because we see God use his servant Nehemiah to bring about reform to his people again showing us that the work of reformation doesn't end. See, while the first half of my sermon had us very much looking inward at our own areas of weakness when it comes to sin, for the second half, I think it has us looking outward, as we'll see an example of Nehemiah and how he navigates dealing with a faith community that's in sin. See, in chapter 13, I think it's clear that Nehemiah provided a a stark contrast to what we see from the Jews in Jerusalem. See how different they are because from his example, what I suggest we see is a faithful servant who wasn't at all permissive of sin but instead was someone who demonstrated a passion for holiness. And if you've read through the whole chapter, boy, was he passionate. Right? Theologian Derek Kidner describes if on his first visit, Nehemiah had been a whirlwind. On his second, he was all fire and earthquake to a city that had settled down in its absence to a comfortable compromise with the Gentile world. I mean, Nehemiah, if you read through chapter 13, Nehemiah was throwing furniture. He was reprimanding leaders. He even pulled out others' hairs and beards. You know, he went full Old Testament on them, some would say. But these things weren't done for some sort of shock value. But there was so much more to Nehemiah's passion because he deeply cared about God's people and cared about their holiness before God. What we're going to see from Nehemiah is his response to seeing his people's permissiveness of sin. And while some people can be critical of Nehemiah's response, hoping that he had been more diplomatic or polite, I think we have to all remember how poisonous this permissiveness had become of God's people. Think about it. The high priest was sinning heavily. That affected the community. It was poisonous. It's like if I saw you not looking and you were walking and you were just about to step into a fiery pit, I'm not going to be in line like, ah, oh, just watch out, please. Like I'm going to actually yell out, look out. You're going to fall in or if need be, I'd grab you and pull you back. And I think this is what Nehemiah was doing as we read this chapter, not worrying about being diplomatic, thinking he was going to impose his views on other people, but he saw the potency of sin and how they had allowed it to corrupt their entire community. Nehemiah loved his people, was passionate about their holiness. It is far more loving to yell out and physically grab somebody than politely let them choose to walk into that pit. And so we see him respond this way, aiding in their spiritual reform. We see just how affected Nehemiah is by all this. And what I think we see, what we definitely see is a man who is clearly displeased when he learnt of their sin. See, in this final chapter, Nehemiah retells how he felt seeing all the sin of God's people and all their permissiveness upon his return. Verse 8 says that he was angry. Verse 11 says he questioned their decision-making. Verse uh, 15 says that he warned them. Verse 25 says that he cursed them, not like swore at them, but pronounced actually pronounced a curse on them for the, all their sin. In verse 25, He says he even struck some of them and pulled out their hair and pulled out their beards. Here was a man who was clearly displeased about upon finding out about their sin. He had a genuine disdain for sin, unhappy that it was still running rampant in this faith community. Imagine coming back after 12 years, hoping after they'd left being good and coming back and seeing it's just at the same place. And so we see his actions reflect his displeasure. See, now it's fair that some could say his actions seem a bit extreme. Like I wouldn't advocate for you to get physical, you know, like pull, like pull out each other's hair when it comes to, like, as a good partial method, right? I'm not going to condone that. But the point is not so much what he exactly did, but more so the gravity of sin he saw his people in and how displeasing it was in his sight. To think, some of the women that the Jews were intermarrying were from religions that practiced child sacrifice. Now, knowing that, some might now say maybe Nehemiah's Motivations and methods were actually pretty good and necessary. And it's interesting because this isn't the first time that we've seen someone show such great displeasure to Israel's sin. In Ezra chapter 9, we see Ezra rip out his own hair upon hearing of Israel's sinning. See, scholar Matthew Henry writes, Ezra had plucked off his own hair in holy sorrow for the sin. Nehemiah plucked off their hair in holy indignation at the sinner's. See the different tempers of wise and good and useful men. It was like Nehemiah was upset on behalf of God at the unjust, unworthy actions of God's people in the face of a just God. I think Nehemiah reacting with such displeasure when hearing of their sin is actually quite faithful to the Lord. A visual representation of God's hatred of evil. A vast contrast to the Jews who were complacent and and permissive of sin, which in the end damaged all of them. see, I think we see attributes here of a righteous anger shown here by Nehemiah in this chapter and If you want to hear more about what a righteous anger looks like, Pastor Luke preached a great sermon on that in Nehemiah chapter five to seven, which explains this well, that you can look back on. But what we can learn from nehemiah's pas- passion for holiness here is that we too ought to feel the same kind of displeasure when we see our fellow brothers and sisters in sin. It's actually wrong not to be, because if we're not careful, if we're complacent when it comes to others' sin, we may too begin to start tolerating sin, become permissive of sin ourselves. But see, with his displeasure... Nehemiah made sure that wouldn't happen to him. But more importantly, what he did from that was then he took action. Notice that Nehemiah didn't see the problem of God amidst God's people, shake his fist in anger and then go back to watching TV. But Nehemiah took action. Nehemiah tackled the problems head on. He went to the storeroom and threw out all of Tobias' stuff giving orders for the place to be cleansed and restored back to how it was, how it should be. He reprimanded the officials who allowed the God's people to no longer tithe, restoring the temple workers to their roles and appointed new faithful men to oversee the tithes and offerings. He commanded that the doors be shut and locked on the Sabbath, posting guards there to enforce this while the Levites were purified and were able to be gatekeepers at the gate as well. He strongly opposed those who were guilty of intermarrying, so much so that he chased the grandson of uh, Eliashib out of town. (laughs) Can you imagine me chasing somebody out of here? (laughs) Uh, I'm very slow, so it wouldn't happen. But you see how Nehemiah took action because he cared about their holiness. And I just love how he did this. Notice that he confronted the problems. We have to remember this. Notice that he confronted the problems with the purpose of restoring it to righteous action. He didn't just take away the issue but directed it back to how it should be in accordance with the Lord. And I think that's such a big takeaway for us listening to this right now that pointing out our fellow brothers' and sisters' sin is not for some self-righteous accusing. But the sincere and genuine motive behind Nehemiah's actions was his passion for holiness, for their holiness. He wanted them restored to the Lord. He was active in their constant need for reform, wanting to glorify God out of a love for his fellow people. And so that's often the big question we need to ask ourselves before we take action. Are my motives pure before God? Am I doing this because I love them, care about their sanctification and want them restored before God or is it for another reason? We need to check our hearts before we go confronting the problems of sin. We need to pray asking the Lord to search our hearts and remove any impurities that motivate us. We need to be in the word, his word, God's word, a scripture gives us the words and the wisdom to love our brothers and sisters well. We need to be humble, reminding ourselves that we are not immune to our own permissiveness or sin, but that God's grace is for all of us. God can and does use us for his restorative work in the lives of others. But we must remember that it is him who does the restoring, not us. Which leads to my last observation that Nehemiah responded with a complete reliance on God. See, as Nehemiah closes his book in this final chapter, three times he prays to God with the words, remember me. And I find it such a memorable line because we've seen this intense, proactive, fire and brimstone man of God come roaming through the community of God's people. And yet, in this simple line, remember me, O God, it's Nehemiah asking God for his help. Asking that God sees what he's doing, to remember him, to be with him, to intervene. Pastor uh, Past principal, Peter Adam of Ridley College, Peter Adam describes it well. Remember me was the prayer of a powerless man who depended on the power of God to save. To pray for God to remember was a desperate prayer that God would act. It was a prayer of humility and trust in God as well as a desire for God's well done. He was a man who completely depended on God. He was passionate about holiness. He sought the approval, not of men, but of the Lord. He desired faithfulness, obedience, holiness of God's people. And so God would use him to bring about continual reform for his people. God would use him for good, which is quite inspiring because the last words of this book, Nehemiah, is the prayer, remember me, God, oh my God, for good. And his prayer is remembered. 2,000 years on, because as we look at this book and this prayer from Nehemiah, we see how encouraging it is that we see a man who cared so much about a people's holiness. See, closing out our Rebuild series, we've seen two prominent faithful men of God who brought about great reform and renewal amongst God's chosen people. We had Ezra a leader who could only be described as a man of the word, who brought about spiritual revival to God's people through the teaching and living of God's good word. And we had Nehemiah, a leader who's best described as a man of prayer, who was constant, who was completely dependent and reliant on God being the one to bring about change and transformation in his people. It's a wonderful thing that God would give his people, these two great faithful men, two people who God would use to bring about his reviving touch. But even in this rebuild, for the book of Nehemiah to end in such a sobering way, with God's people falling back to old sinful patterns, the joyful obedience has faded, a people who earlier demonstrated a great commitment to the Lord only to now abandon those same commitments and now forsake the Lord. It's so evident from these two books that God's people could not live up to the law, that God's people could not live up to the righteousness that God demanded, that God's law could never save them from their sin. It's like every time Ezra or Nehemiah corrected them, helped them in their reforming, they go and stuff it up, leaving us readers with the question, is there any real hope for the future? And that's exactly the point. Ezra and Nehemiah did whatever they could to help restore the people back to God. But it was always pointing forward to what only Jesus could do. Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Jesus lived the life we couldn't live, sinless, obedient, righteous. Holy. And yet in his sinlessness, he took on our punishment, our judgment on the cross. Jesus took our place, dying the sin meant for sinners, conquering death, raised to life. And now he's sitting at the right hand of the father, leaving us with his helper, with his Holy Spirit, who continues to do a sanctifying work in us, helping us in our holiness, growing us more into the likeness of Jesus. Jesus did all this so that those who believe in him are now restored to the Father. By God's grace, through faith in Jesus, we are saved from sin and its penalty. We are now justified, declared righteous by our great God on account of not what we've done, not what Ezra or Nehemiah has done, but what Jesus has done. And now we have God in us by his spirit. What Ezra and Nehemiah hoped to do for the people of God, Jesus did do in full. But this doesn't mean that what Ezra and Nehemiah did was in vain. See, God used them to help rebuild and restore the city walls, the temple, uh, uh, the, the city walls and the temple and the people, uh, the very city and walls that Jesus, the Messiah, would one day walk through. God used them to preserve the line of God's people, the line of the tribe of Judah that the Messiah Jesus would one day come from. And God used Ezra and Nehemiah as great examples of faithfulness and zeal. For holiness, which should encourage us even more today of why we can't be permissive of sin, why we need to be passionate for holiness. Because as the Bible says, it is only until Jesus returns again where he will bring about a new heavens and a new earth that will be made completely into the image of Christ, our glorification as we spend eternity in his presence. But until then, we are still prone to sin. Until then, we still need correction. So scholar T.J. Betts puts it, we need the correction of God's word. We need the correction of the Holy Spirit and we need the correction of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Nehemiah does not give up on God's people or on the Lord's work and neither should we. So church, as we close out this Rebuild series, let's look inward and ask Are there areas of our own life that we are permissive of sin? Stop the sin before it stops you. And let's also look outward. Let's have a passion for holiness, for our brothers and sisters sitting around here today and faithfully be a part of their daily reforming and importantly, let others be a part of ours. We can never reach a point where the transformative news of Jesus is considered unnecessary. Never. Every day we need the gospel both for ourselves and those around us. Daily we need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. As Pastor J.C. Ryle ends, we became Christians by faith in Jesus, we stay Christians by faith in Jesus, and we grow as Christians by faith in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are a God who loves us. We thank you that you are a God who restores. That as we've seen in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we are so sinful and we fall so short, Lord. And no matter what we do, we would never deserve to be in a right relationship with you. And yet, God, in your grace, you sent us your son, Jesus, He came to deal with our sin, to defeat it, to cleanse it, and to make us right before you, all by what he has done, not by what we have done. Lord, we thank you that through Jesus we are restored to you and we joyously wait for that time where we can be in your presence forever. But until then, Lord, help us. By your Spirit, help us not be permissive of sin, not be complacent, but be passionate for our holiness. We thank you that you are daily reforming us and we thank you that we can do it together as a church, as a body. Help us, humble us, change us, we pray in Jesus' name.
0: Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.